This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, welcome to From the Kitchen Table. I'm Sean Duffy along with my co-host for the podcast, my partner in life, and my wife, Rachel Campos Duffy. Sean, it's so great to be back. And we're talking about a subject that everybody wants, happiness. And so we're bringing in a friend of ours. um, What a great guy. Arthur Brooks, he has a new book out and it's called, I want to make sure I get the title exactly right. Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Arthur Brooks, welcome to the kitchen table. We appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. And it's nice to see both of you. I haven't seen you in person in, in, in a couple of <laughs> years, a as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's like, been a while. Five years, Arthur. It's been yeah. a while. Next, next time you come to the kitchen table, you got to bring the beautiful Esther with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd love it. And she would love it. It's a good thing to get out to get out of the, you know, the Eastern Corridor from time to time, I have to say. Yes. I doubt about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, this is such an interesting topic. And it's such a great collaboration, you and Oprah working together. And so what is the secret to happiness? You're, you're putting science behind it. We talk a yeah. lot about it, by the way, Arthur, on the show, things that we think make people happy. But let's talk about your book and why you, what you've learned through the science of happiness. Yeah, I mean, I dedicated myself when I left my last job. I was the president of a big think tank in Washington, D.C. But I'm trained as a social scientist. You know, my, my PhD is in behavioral economics, as a matter of fact. And so, I, you know, I study human behavior. And I thought, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Well, you know, I want to be happy and I want to bring more happiness to other people. I want to lift people up and bring them together. But I'm a social scientist, meaning that I'm not going to just do, you know, internet nostrums. <laughs> One weird trick to try to get happier. I'm going to actually <laughs> use my training. And so when I, when I left uh, Washington, D.C. and I took a professorship at Harvard University, I said, I'm going to study seriously this and bring it to the largest audience possible. I started writing a column on the science of happiness in the Atlantic and, and reading and speaking about it all over the place. And I wound up working with Oprah Winfrey and, and we published this book for ordinary people to understand this basic science of happiness. And it starts with the biggest mistake that people make. The biggest reason people are not as happy as they could be is because they think happiness is a feeling and happiness isn't a feeling. Feelings are evidence of happiness, just like the smell of the turkey is evidence of your Thanksgiving dinner. It's not the same thing as your Thanksgiving dinner. Your happiness is a combination of enjoyment of your life satisfaction with your accomplishments and the meaning that you get in your life. And the whole book is about how to get those three things in higher num- and higher amounts without trying to fool yourself into thinking you'll never be unhappy again. So, Arthur, when we look at, and in your book, you talk about, you know, real connections, real lifelong friendships, real right. relationships. And, you know, today we have the Internet, so much um, social interaction on, on apps, social media platforms, and there's a lot of connection. There's a lot of, you know, friends that people have, a lot of conversations that they have back and forth, a lot of liking of different commentary. But the more we look at those kind of interactions, the more we see people becoming less happy mm-hmm. and more unhappy. Right. 
Right. No, that's true. And the truth of the matter is that happiness has been in decline in the United States for a number of decades. And it's mostly sort of the climate of people declining in their faith, declining in their family connections, declining in the, in the number of real friendships that they have, kind of a dysfunctional relationship they have with work. But then there were these storms. So that's kind of the climate of happiness. And there's kind of the weather of happiness. The big storm in happiness that pushed us down was the advent of social media and the use of screens. This was yeah. really horrible. One of the things that we talk a lot about in the book is the brain science of human connection. There's a hormone that we produce in our brains called oxytocin. It's a neuropeptide that functions like a hormone. It's human connection. Now you two have a bunch of kids and, and you remember when each child is born and you have eye contact with your newborn baby for the first time, it's like mm -hmm. the 4th of July inside your head. <laughs> That's oxytocin. Evolutionary biologists say that so that that's so we bond to the baby and don't leave the baby on the bus or something like that. But the truth <laughs> is, it's actually magic. I think it's the hand of God giving us this connection to the people that we love the most, our family members, our closest friends. You only get it from eye contact and touch. When you're really lonely, you look for it in other places like social media, like screens. But that just that's like getting all of your meals at fast food joints. It's like eating three meals a day at 7-Eleven. I mean, it'll, it'll satisfy your hunger a little bit, but you'll become really malnourished really quickly. So that's why people who binge on social media, they get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And that's one of the big sources of our unhappiness in this country and around the world. Yeah, there's no question, especially with teenagers, that there's there's an addiction. I am guilty of it myself. Sometimes Sean gets so mad at me because I, you know, I consume so much media on my phone because that's how I right. pretty much read articles. I don't have a laptop, so it's always on my phone. And I try and tell Sean that there's no one I'd rather scroll next to, but that doesn't seem to satisfy yeah. him. Um, so yeah, we all have to, to work at that. I, when I read your, your, you know, your book and everything that's, that you're, you're putting forward there, you had these 11 principles and um, I thought it was interesting because when I looked at the principles, to me, at their core, they sounded very Catholic. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if Oprah approves, <laughs> but uh, it's definitely, to me, a lot of it at its core is very Catholic. This idea right. that, you know, go, you, you know, when there's negative things that happen, I mean, as Catholics, we believe you're a Catholic, um, that suffering is part of life, that we actually right. learn from that. Um, talk to me about those principles and how much of your own experience as a Catholic man um, and a devout Catholic man from Catholic family had played into some of these lessons. Well, a lot. My Catholic faith is at the center of my life, is the most important thing in my life. But this is a book really based on social science, and it turns out, not very coincidentally, that the Christian life is very, it, when, it, when it's pursued seriously, as yeah. a matter of the person that people that we're trying to be, it's really very, very good for happiness, which is good yeah. news, I have to say. <laughs> and and yes. one of the big things that you just brought up that's critical for us to understand, look, I told you that the first big mistake that people make is thinking that happiness is a feeling. The second big mistake that they make is thinking that happiness is a destination, that you can be ultimately happy. You can't be, because that would be eradicating bad feelings and bad experiences, and suffering is a normal part of life. Unhappiness yeah. is a very important part of life, partly because negative emotions keep us alive. And if we're, you know, we're afraid sometimes of things that are threats, and we get rid of all those things, we'll be eaten by a tiger in two seconds or run over by a car in modern life or whatever it happens to be. But it's also that we need negative experiences to teach us about our own resiliency, to teach us about who we are as people. And, you know, we understand that as, as Christian people, you know, the people who are watching us or from other good, you know, very, you know, 
pro-social religious backgrounds or even secular backgrounds. They know perfectly they need to have suffering so that they can be fully alive as people. So one of the things that I urge my students at Harvard, because I teach a big class at the Harvard Business School in the Science of Happiness, don't be afraid of unhappiness. Don't believe that if you're feeling unhappy, something's wrong with you. It means something's right with you. If you were never unhappy, then you need therapy, quite frankly. Then you actually need to seek help immediately if you're happy all the time. It means something's actually <laughs> wrong and you won't find the meaning in your life that will actually reward you for the rest of your life. Unhappiness yeah. is not the enemy. It's in, like when we talk about people who say, we never fight in, with, marriage. in marriages yeah. and they always end up divorced um, because yeah. that's part fight. of it. Yeah. You never, it's not bliss all the time, right? And life is not bliss all the time. To your, to your point, Arthur, um, you know, it, but it, it, in the book, it seems like there's a, there's a lot of internal strategies of how we deal with unhappiness, how we, you know, look at it on a spiritual path, um, how we try to share happiness with the rest of the world. But is there, don't, is there a hand in glove of the choices that we make in our life, whether we go to church, whether we get involved in our community, whether we get off of social media, and then how we respond to the unhappiness or the troubles that come into our life? Are those things tied together, Arthur, the, the choices we make, but also how we view the things that happen to us in our life and how yeah, we address for sure. them. You know, the way that, that Oprah and I have set up this book is the first part of the book is about emotional self-management. You need to understand the science of what's going on between your ears so that your, your feelings are not managing you, that you can actually manage your feelings. And with a few, just a few ideas and a little bit of practice, everybody can get better at that. People are so mystified about what's going on. And when you do, you find you have tons of time. You're not just, you're not, you're not scrolling social media nearly as much as you were. There's no more shopping therapy because you're not distracting yourself from your discomfort when you can manage yourself. And then you're, you're free to actually pursue the sources of real happiness, to pursue the habits of the happiest people, your happiness 401k plan, to put the investments in those accounts. And those accounts are very simple. There's really only four, your faith, your family, your friendship, and your work that serves other people. You're less Purpose. distracted from all the dumb stuff, the outrage on television, the politics, the social media, the cancel culture, you know, all the, you know, the social comparison, all that ridiculous stuff. That's all it is doing is numbing you because you're so uncomfortable with your emotions. And then you can put a deposit in your faith account and call your mother and actually develop your friendships and, and, and gear your work towards serving other people. And you will get happier. So I'm fascinated by you having a happiness course at Harvard. And I yeah. want to ask you um, what you're seeing in this generation and what what are their troubles in finding happiness? What are the things they hope to get out of this course? I had an opportunity to speak once to Sean's kindergarten teacher. And yeah. I've also enjoyed speaking ever since that time. I've enjoyed speaking to older teachers who have seen young kids through the generations and they all tell me the same thing arthur they say that and 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 this was even before you know i think social social media you know i think that's such an obvious thing mm. but they just said they're so lonely they're so sad they come to school with so many problems that other generations didn't have Right. And so much of that, I mean, it just it breaks my heart when they, right. when they when they tell me these things. And so much of it is because of the breakdown of the family that these children just want their moms and dads. And, and so whether 
their parents are working too hard so they don't actually see their parents because then after school they go to aftercare and then by the time they get home and, and they eat, they're, they're in bed, they really don't get much parent time or um, there's divorce and, and a lot of pain and dysfunction. I, yeah. that there are kindergartners that are coming to school in a way that kindergartner teachers didn't recognize 30, 40 years ago is fascinating and sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, that I, you know, my students are in, by and large in their mid twenties, but I'm dealing with people all over the country. I'm doing 175 talks a year outside of the classroom, you know, and I'm writing books and talking to all different generations. And the biggest problem that we have is the same for everybody, for kids, for adolescents, for 20 somethings, millennials, all the way up to, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in the last year of the baby boom, you know, the last surviving gasp of the baby boom. And it's the same thing for people who are my age as well, that there is a deficit of love is what it comes down to. That's why you, you notice that the four happiness habits, the 401k, faith, family, friends, and work, they're all different aspects of human love that are in decline. Love of the divine, love of your family, love of your friends, your real friends. And by the way, the apex of friendship and family life is spousal love. There's, there's nothing more magical than that. I mean, the two of you, I'm sure you fight like cats and dogs. So Esther and I do too. I mean, and, yeah. you know, she's my Spanish, wife, I know. She's Spanish, I know. It's like, it's just, it's a, it's there's just no a form way around of, it. it's just basic communication. It's a form of love. yelling. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's love. I try and tell him that too, Arthur. But... I know. I know. I know. The first five years were tricky, but you know, yeah. the, you know, 32 years <laughs> in, I think we're good to go. But yeah, and then there's of course love for everybody. I mean, the two of you, what you're doing, what you've done in public life, but but now in the media, it's this is a gift of love to other people. Every time you go on the air, it's an opportunity to send a love note to the people out there as you earn your daily bread, as you sanctify your daily work. It's really, really important that we think about this. And and our culture is militating against this. And, and part of the reason is because, you know, we have a minority of leaders in this country that's feeding off hatred. They, they are. They want to drive us apart. They want us to, to be at each other's throats because that gets clicks and links and viewers and money and followers and just jollies from people. But remember, when we don't love, when we hate, somebody else is profiting. And it's time for us to have, quite frankly, I'm going to sound like, you know, the Berkeley 1968 summer of love hippie, but we need a rebellion of love in this country. It's time for young people to say no more. And that's what my students say. They're in the class because they're like, Give me a better way, man, because this cancel culture nonsense, all it's doing is yeah. making me unhappy. All this politics yeah. and stupidity. I don't care if it's the right or the left. It's no good. We'll have more of this conversation after this. Since the 1970s, working class Americans and U.S. investors who saved wealth in dollars have seen the dollar lose over 80% of its purchasing power. In contrast, investors who diversified their cash into gold saw gold appreciate over 5,000%. For Americans who invested $50,000 in gold when America left the gold standard in the 70s, their gold is worth more than $2.5 million today. While gold carries no guarantees and past performance does not equal future results, investors who do their own research will see that gold's performance over this time span is what gold has consistently done in the face of eroding paper currencies. For over 15 years, St. Joseph Partners has built its business with a singular focus on helping investors diversify their wealth and protect their families in physical gold and silver you hold in your hand. Don't let your hard-earned savings go unhedged. Call St. Joseph Partners or go to our joint website, kitchengold.net, not .com. That is kitchengold.net and protect your wealth. And, and Arthur, I think it's a really good point. So what I found is, again, there are... The, the, the view 
that Americans have of where this country should go is very, very different. There's not right. a lot of common ground. That's true. Um, and I think our, we have a long history of this, of debating policies and direction. And I think that's a good thing. The problem that I, when I, I saw when I was in Congress, and I got to get to know you and you're at AEI, which you did a great right. job uh, as the head of AEI, um, was that instead of debating ideas and issues and fighting over those things, we started to make it personal. So I, I use the example of Maxine Waters, who is very liberal. She's a congresswoman from California. We don't agree on anything. Right. But I kind of considered her a friend. Um, yeah. I got along with her really well. I didn't have to hate Maxine Waters because I really disliked her ideas. Um, I actually could like her and dislike her ideas. I, and I didn't make it personal. And I think when people start to hate, it becomes, a st it becomes a state of mind. You start to hate a whole bunch of things as opposed to going, I don't like the idea, but I can see the goodness in that person. I yeah, can see probably. that she comes from a good place. I don't agree with it, but she's trying to do what she thinks is best. Yeah. And the amazing thing to a lot of young people today is when you say something radical, like you can actually fall in love with and marry somebody from the other political party. Whoa, it used to happen all the time. We've done a lot of shows on this, Arthur. We're going to yeah. have to come to a disagreement on that. Well, no, I want to just take the, the case. You go on that Yeah, well, the problem with it is. You're just trying to go after me. Okay, here, let's yeah, hear yeah, what no, you say, no, but it's a, So what happened is that you find if you go back to 1960, only 6% of parents cared about the political party of the spouse of their child. 6%. Now it's 60%. 70% of dating profiles contain information suggesting that a person would not date another, a person of the other party. Why? Because politics has become a cult in this country. People are actually getting their identity from politics. You shouldn't, you know, you're, you, you're not your opinions. I got my opinions. I'm a political conservative. This is well known. You know, I'm, you know, the full spectrum, just like you, just mm -hmm. like the two of you. We agree on everything, I'm sure. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter. My parents, they were super liberal. My so whole family were super liberal. They were great family, great people. They brought me up with all the values that matter for, you know, the idea that everybody in the world is my sister or brother, that I'm going to be a Christian until my dying day, that the last breath I take, I'll be looking at the, you know, the wife of decades after decade after decade after decade. I mean, this is the stuff that really matters. And yeah, yeah, they thought taxes should be higher than me. Yeah, I got it. You know, but I'm not talking about on. taxes, but, though. But, but Arthur, so with the, again, it's I'm, not tax rate. You're an economist, so you think like that. But I, what... Well, you go ahead, Sean. Well, no, I was going to say, well, if you if you want to marry someone, and again, I, I hope that you're right, because I think that would be great. And I, yeah. I, I would, I'd like I, to live I in that be, world again. <laughs> I want to be wrong. But when there's a disagreement on, are there more than two genders and should kids transition or um, abortion? You know, what's the history of America? Are we are we fundamentally bad and racist or, you know, were we flawed, but we've stro we strive to be better? I think what do we do with crime? I mean, I think there's some fundamental issues that if you don't agree on those basic concepts of life, I think that can rip people apart. And I, I hear now more, uh, I hear now more from people that a lot of liberals are like, if you support Donald Trump, need not apply. And mm -hmm. I hear that less from conservatives, but how do you, how do you, you know, come together on the fundamentals? Should we really care if Rachel thinks there's 10 sexes and I think there's two, could we still love each other? I think so. But it has permeated every aspect of life today, which means that's going to overcome, you know, I think she's a beautiful woman and she's really nice and she's a great cook and, you know. <laughs> Good mother, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, Sean, 
It depends on how important those things are to you. You know, if you put too much emphasis on those things, absolutely. So you find, by the way, the dating profile literature is really interesting. 71% of liberals won't date a conservative. 41% of conservatives won't date a liberal. That's right. Yeah, that, that, what, yeah the reason for that point. is actually it's women versus men, and, and it just shows that men have lower standards, apparently. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but but the, the important thing for us to remember is that, that, you know, I know tons of couples that differ on abortion. I know tons of couples that differ on. And the reason is because their love and their family life and their religious belief transcends the importance of that as an issue. They're willing to so, say, I, this is my view, but I might be wrong. And I love you more than I care about that policy. And that's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. And we got to get back to the relative importance of these things, even when there's major disagreements. Okay, so we, we've done a lot of podcasts, Arthur, on, on dating and love yeah. and marriage. It's sort of like our little space, too. And so here's my thought on it. So first of all, I think politics reflect values. So for me, right. as a Christian Catholic woman who also takes her faith very seriously, an issue like abortion, it would be very hard for me to be married to somebody who didn't believe that the child growing inside of my womb was a real human being and that other children deserve a right to live super fundamental and um so so that's that's a big thing i think values politics uh, matter i think in the 1980s um i think there's a lot more overlap of 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 ideas and thoughts and and politics and i think and of course I, i bring my bias to this i think that that liberals have become so radical that even Democrats don't even recognize them. So I think things have gotten off the rails to a point where I don't think there's a lot of that space. And I think marriage is so important. Um, and there's so many other things to fight about that I want to have, you know, I think you should find as much in common as possible to start your marriage. And that means, yeah. you know, faith first and foremost, of course. Yeah. Um, but then I think, you know, because politics has become such, I mean, it's interesting you, you say, uh, this is what I wanted to ask you about the kids in your class, because yeah. so many young people I find are so intolerant and yeah. so many of them tend to be more left-leaning. It doesn't surprise me, by the way, that more conservatives are willing to, to marry or date liberals than liberals to conservatives. And, and, I, and, I, and I don't say that with glee at all. It makes me sad. Um, but so that's, that's my theory on it. Yeah, well, you know, the truth, is complex in this cases of you know the the students and one of the things that i tell them is that they've been led astray into thinking that that they need commonality lots of commonality the research shows that you need a baseline on values like you're talking about it's lower than you think that baseline is lower than you think and then a successful marriage is based on complementarity i mean look at the two of you i mean it's like yeah 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 you're like rachel you're not a wisconsinite from your background i mean there's no and, no. and it, you know, and I, I married somebody from halfway across the world who literally yeah. didn't speak English when we met. We spoke no mm-hmm. words in common. The truth is that the happiest marriages have a baseline of commonality, a baseline of, of, of common values, and then tons of complementarity, tons of differences. That's what the happiest marriages are based on. You know, mm-hmm. when you, and, and what you find is in the, cur- the culture today is that young people are being told they need to find somebody who's their sibling, which, as my adult kids would say, is not hot. That's not and one of the biggest reasons that, that young people today are, are, are loveless. And we find that, you know, people in their 20s are about 50 percent less likely to be married than they were yeah. when I got married. 
in the 90s. They're about 50% less likely to be cohabitating. They're even less likely to say that they're in love, about a third less likely mm. to say they're in love. And a big reason for that is that they're not as attracted to each other. And the reason they're less attracted to each other is because they're looking for, at, their, at a picture in the mirror. You got to look for somebody who's really different than you. So what I tell my students, by the way, is I say, don't put anything about politics in your dating profile. I mean, actually find somebody to set you up. That's more important. But if you can't... Oh, I agree with yeah. that, 100%. Yeah, totally. You got a human, because humans are really good at setting you up with somebody who's yes. your match, who's your complement. Is that mm-hmm. alike enough and then different enough? But if you do your dating profile, then take all the politics out and put a moratorium on it so that you're not actually going to talk about politics until the fourth date. By then, there's a neurochemical cascade in your brain that's making you fall in love if you're still dating after four dates, and it will be less important. That will actually so, take its natural place in the progression of importance in your life because your the, brain chemistry is going to be taken over. But Arthur, if that's if that's if that's the people that we deal with, we're like, listen, politics is a secondary issue. There's all these other things that are more important to me in my life. Right. Um, I can find someone that agrees with those things uh, with me on. I think that could actually work. And I think the problem that Rachel and I talk about is the politics has become so important. And I hope that right. your students listen to you and go. You can find commonality and love outside of politics. And right. if they listen, that's wonderful. You know, what, what I love about, and I think you've talked about this since you're at AEI, um, and, it, I, and, I, and I've thought about Arthur Brooks a lot in my life as I've thought about gratitude. Mm. I mean, that we yeah. have air to breathe, that I have a roof over my head, that I'm not hungry right now. There are simple things mm. that I can be grateful for. And an attitude of gratitude, which Rachel says to the kids all the, time, all the time, have an attitude of gratitude. When you're grateful, all of a sudden, your perspective on life can, can kind of change. And I love that you always talk about gratitude because everybody, that you're alive, yeah. you should be grateful for, that you can always find something to be grateful for. And I love that that's always part of what you talk about. And you talk yeah. about that in your book as well. Yeah. There's almost nothing that'll make you more grateful than your mom telling you to be grateful, however. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, African children who yeah, haven't eaten, you know, we all do that. We can't help it, but we see poverty. I, I grew up in the third world. I know what it looks like. And I, I can't understand why they're so entitled. I know. I know. They're like, okay, mom, send my sandwich to Africa. Yeah. Make mm-hmm. it, you know, so yeah. But you know, it's important. You're making this really important point. And this is one of the things that we talk about an awful lot. Human beings are evolved to look at the negative. That's called the negativity bias. It's literally mm-hmm. a phenomenon that's that's a force of nature because because negative emotions keep you alive. Threats, the, the perception of threats actually keep you alive. You have more brain tissue dedicated to negative emotions than to positive emotions. You know, when you're in a room full of people, a sweet smile from across the room is pleasant. A negative face frowning at you from across the room might be your demise outside, you know, on the street if you're not paying attention to it. So that's why the human brain is evolved to have negative emotions and look at the negative side of things. But it's maladapted. You know, today we're, we have the same basic ideas or emotions about Twitter that we do about being cast out of our tribe and wandering the frozen, frozen tundra by ourselves. You know, in Twitter, it ain't the tundra. And so we need to actually <laughs> intervene in this process and, and, and make conscious attempts to have strategies to override these natural tendencies. And one of them is counting our blessings is what it comes down to. So I ask my students to make a gratitude list on Sunday nights at the beginning of the semester. And, and they, they, they write down the five things they're most grateful for. I don't even care if they're stupid. My team won. I ate a piece of pie, whatever it happens to be. Maybe very profound. The Lord loves me, whatever it is. 
and then look at it every night over the course of the week, update it every Sunday. And by the end of 10 weeks, they are on average 12% happier because they've been overriding their negativity bias systematically. This is something that Oprah and I, in the book, we call emotional substitution. It's like drinking coffee, which blocks the adenosine molecules in your brain, is you choose an emotion that's more appropriate to your circumstances. And when you do that, you have an amazing effect. The other thing is when you feel resentful or sad, making a joke, that's a classic way of doing it as well. When you're feeling pessimistic, say something that's hopeful. There's so many ways that you can use emotional caffeine, emotional substitution to change your point of view. Yeah. Um, you said something earlier that really resonated with me as a fellow Catholic, and you said sanctify your work. I wonder um, if you could expound on that, because that what meant a lot to me when I, I was an at-home mom for 14 years. Yeah. And you don't get a lot of kudos. I get, you know, people tell me how great I am on TV. They also say a lot of negative stuff to me, but I can handle all that. And I love the praise. But when you're an at-home mom, for example, you don't get praise except for Sean, who was always so wonderful and always came home and thanked me for being an at-home mom when I did do that. Um, and But, you know, I had to learn to sanctify my yeah. work and to say, you know, wiping a mouth, tying a shoe, you know, yeah. cutting an apple, that, that I was doing this... Um, that I was doing this for God, that my little kids were like Jesus, you know, yeah. and I was yeah. doing it for them. But that's easy, easier to do as a Catholic. We live in a secular world and I would guess most of your students, for example, don't have that kind of background. Um, talk to me about sanctifying work in a yeah. secular world. I mean, that's what, you know, Mother Teresa always talked about, that, that yes. we can, that life is full of, of little things with great love. Yeah, do, do small with things love. with great love, I think she yeah, said. It's yeah, it's a really, really important point, of course. And, you know, so for Catholics or for Christian people, for religious people in general, you can put a, a supernatural, you understand that there is a supernatural dimension to everything that you're doing. Yes. Right? I mean, what are we trying to do? I mean, they, your children are literally the poor people who are closest to you every day. So yeah. as you did for the least of these, you did for these on my brothers and sisters. I mean, this is Matthew 25, 44 is no joke when it comes to raising yeah. little kids. They're poor. They got nothing. They know yeah. how to do nothing. They're completely vulnerable. And so you're, you're, you're serving the poor when you're raising your children, even if you charity starts charity. at home, Arthur, I think that's yeah. another mother Teresa thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and so that's a really important thing to keep in mind. But even for people who are not you know, that don't have this, this overtly supernatural dimension of their life. You know, as a social scientist, I will tell you that when you dedicate everything to the spirit of love to other people, when you, when you offer things up, when you're earning your success in the context of serving other people, and, and there's so many ways to do it. You know, I talk to people all day long who will say, my job is boring. <clears throat> I feel like it doesn't matter. I'm sitting in a cubicle doing something that any, I'm a drone. I feel like it's insignificant. I'll say, you know how to inject a supernatural dimension into your work? Go to the break room, get a fresh cup of coffee and bring it to the person in the next cubicle when they didn't even mm. ask for it and say, you know what? You look like you, you could use a fresh cup of coffee and look at the, watch the look in their mm. eyes. It'll be like, what just happened? What that was, was a little moment of grace. And what you become is the guy or the girl who does that. You're the person who actually does that thing. And pretty soon you're going to not going to be able to stop doing that. You're going to be the person who is, how can I help? How can I help? Un it's just acts of kindness, acts of love. Love that. And you'll I weirdly love start loving your job more. Arthur, one, la one last question before you go. Uh, obviously, you are right of center. Yeah. Um, Oprah politically. is yeah. left of yeah. center politically. 
I wouldn't have put you two as dance partners on a book, but yeah. here you and Oprah are writing a book together, which is, again, maybe the message of the book yeah. in, in your point of view, which is we can all love and see common ground together, and especially on happiness. It's a human condition. Tell me just real quick how it was to write the book with Oprah. It was, it was a great experience. And, you know, that I, I got to know her because she's been following my work for a long time. She reads my call in the Atlantic. She read my last book, which is called From Strength to Strength. And I went on her podcast, Super Soul, and we just really hit it off because we have this, you know, basically my mission in life is to lift people up in the spirit of love and happiness and, and bringing them together. That's my mission. And I have a particular way of doing it as a social scientist. And, and she's been trying to do that um, through her work in, in the mass media for a really long time. And she suggested, why don't we do something together? And I said, heck, yeah. I mean, I didn't believe it when she first called. She said, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and this is Batman. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, but it, it was a, it's a wonderful collaboration. I've gotten to know her. And she's become you know, somebody I really admire a lot as a person. And, and knowing her as a friend now, and it's been a wonderful collaboration, I have to say. So it's, it was super fun. You know, we text all the time about how the book is doing. And, you know, you never know. We write a book together. Right now, it's number one in the New York Times bestseller list. A book on happiness. My friends, yeah. there's hope. Yeah, so. it definitely speaks to what people are desire in life. Um, we all want to be happy. Um, I love that you're, you're collaborating. I love seeing these ideas. Um, which I know are grounded so much in our common faith, being you know out there in the culture for all to 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 use and improve their lives. Um, you've been a, a great example out in the world, and I just love that you're doing this. And that's why we wanted to have you on. And we just wish you all the luck with this and with your beautiful Thanks. family and your new grandbaby. And yeah. um, and again, the book is "Build the Life You Want: The Art and Science of Getting Happier." Arthur Brooks. That's a lot of pressure to write that book at home. Yeah. And then every time you're not happy, everyone's like, why aren't you happy? <laughs> I know. Now when I'm in the airport, I better not have anybody see me being unhappy. That's all I can yeah. say. Arthur, yeah. this is a great gift for Christmas, too. So if you yeah. want a Christmas season, give this book to everyone you know, because we all want to be happy. It is the, the aspired human condition. Arthur Brooks, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the kitchen table. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you for what Thank you're doing. You, God Arthur. bless both of you. God bless your whole family. And, you know, all Thank my you. best from my beautiful wife, Esther, to the two of you. Hello, Esther. All right. Thanks, right, Arthur. Right back at See you. See you later. Bye. Bye. We'll have more of this conversation after this. I got to tell you, Rachel, I enjoy the conversation with yeah. Arthur and got to know him when he was at AEI when I was in Congress. And yeah. This is a theme he has always had in life of, of, of study and happiness. And I think when you see more Americans becoming unhappy, it's a great space to play and to go, how, you know, what did we do a hundred, two hundred, fifty years ago where people were happy? They had less money. They worked really hard back then, but they were happier. And so what can we learn? Yeah. Real skill sets to make people uh, happier if they employ them in their life. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's an, it's an incredible topic because as, as we said, everyone wants it. You know, there's some things we didn't get to get to with him that I thought, were really important. Um, he talked about conflict, especially in relation sh- in relation to families and marriages, and how you should not avoid conflict. And um, and he talked about family. I mean, family is such an important part of happiness. And I think that's the component that, to me, when I taught, like for example, I brought up you know talking to kindergarten teachers for that kind of generational perspective of where kids were at and like the kind of problems that six-year-olds are experiencing at Mm -hmm. home. I mean, that they never had, you know, back in the 70s and 60s, for example, or or 80s even. Um, This sort of 
the, the idea that we say we value families, we talk about families, but everything in our culture is set at everything from like easy divorces to, you know, the kind of language. I mean, frankly, let's be honest, that kind of, you know, people like Oprah um, bring up sometimes, which is like, that's toxic. You know, you're toxic. So I can't, you know, you know, I need to get that out toxicity out of my life. Well, sometimes that's your sister, you know, and you got to work it out. Um, so I think that, you know, and by the way, it's not my sister. I love my sister. But me and my sister argue and, and fight and work things out just like you and I argue and fight things out. And I think when you don't value family, when when everything seems so, whether it, it, it's it's marriage or family ties seems like optional and transitional and not permanent. I think that's one of the things that happens. And like when you realize that, you know, no matter what happens, no matter how many fights we're in, no matter how angry you are at me, no matter how angry I'm at you, we're here together forever. It changes the way you argue. It changes the way you, you're, you're going to approach things. And it goes for every relationship um, in, 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 in your family, whether it's with your kids or your parents. I just think that, that if we could get family right, and frankly, I'm sorry, government has done a lot to ruin families. Um, and so that's just sort of well, I what I took away a little bit, reading his book. So it comes down to people sometimes think that money can make you happy yeah. or fame can make you happy. Now, I do think money can help you be happy because you may be able to do the things that Arthur Brooks talks about in his book if you use it for those purposes. Um, but money itself doesn't make you happy. Fame does not make you happy. Actually, you see people who are rich and famous oftentimes yeah. not happy at all. There are some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet yes, and their right. lives are disasters. And so what it, it made, when he was talking about you know family and friends and faith and a purpose in your work are the four things, I look at that and go, you, you know, I, I left Congress, and again, I, I, we left because we had the baby um, with Valentina and Downs in the heart condition. And nine kids. That was and a little tough it's a, it's, a, it's a lot. <laughs> but again, I always said that I was a U.S. congressman, and I couldn't change that much. The, the greatest impact and the greatest happiness that I have in my life is my family, is my relationship with you. And if you're doing things that are taking you away from your family um, and your relationship with your kids and your spouse— your faith, um, that's a problem. Um, and you're probably not going to be happy. I do think also the the issue of faith, people have, and you made this point, are falling away from their faith right. as people are going to church. Um, and maybe it's simple. Um, try to get a friend, a real friend that you, you're humble with. He talks about humility and friendship, mm -hmm. which is true. Go to church um, and try to be nice to your spouse and your kids or to your parents. Um, and build out those relationships. You know, Sean, there's nothing more humbling than knowing that you're not the most important person. So because there's God, right? I mean, that that just getting that relationship in order is super important. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, when you're, I mean, the only the only requirement to become a Christian is to know that there's a God and that you're a sinner. That's right. And that enough, you know, if you really take that seriously, if you really take that in. Um, that becomes, uh, that, that's a real path to happiness. And, and he said that at the beginning. He said, it's not coincidental that if you live a devout Catholic, you know, Christian life, Christian life, if you take the Christian life seriously, it does lead to happiness. And all the data proves that. Yeah. Um, all the data shows that. I mean, that's why they say conservatives are more, more, and I don't think it's a political thing. I think it has a lot more to do with conservatives 
and their faith life than I think it has to do with politics. You know, we had that disagreement. I, I stand by my, I stand by it. I'm, you know, Arthur Brooks may have some PhDs in it, you know, after his name, but I stand by that at this point in politics, at this point, as you said, Sean, the divide is so huge um, between where left and right is, and it has so much to do with values. Politics reflects values. It would be very hard for me to have a happy marriage and 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 have that same, um, you know, commonality that one would need to get through life with somebody who didn't respect life. That's just for me. It's too much. It's too much to overcome. Now, maybe if he was ambivalent, he said he was pro-choice, but he didn't really know, you know. And I could tell that he just didn't know, and I could you know, help educate him. And maybe if we had a baby together, he would actually see it's a baby. That would be one thing. But to me, uh, that would be really hard to overcome. Yeah. And I think what if what Arthur was saying is the ideal world in which you would live, where politics would be secondary or third and these these common themes that you could build a relationship on were primary, that might be possible Mm -hmm. today. That's not possible mm-hmm. because politics has been self-defining. Right. It, it, it defines who people are. Maybe we wish it wasn't that way, but I it do. is. Um, and again, I think whether it's abortion or there's, you know, a hundred genders and you can be a, a, a fuzzy and you know, whatever they, these genders are um, versus someone who's like, there's only two genders. I mean, it's pretty hard to, to reconcile that relationship. Um, do you remember what he said? It was so interesting. And, I, and, and you guys went off on a different subject and I was, so we'll just bring it up now. But he was saying, you know, <clears throat> you need to have enough differences so that there's attraction, right? He kind of mentioned that. He, he said it in a different way, but essentially said, "What you don't want to, it's not hot to marry your sister, right? Because she's so much like you. So you want these differences. The main difference between you and me, and he brought up Wisconsin. I'm not trying to argue with Arthur. I love him to death. But um, he brought up, well, you're not from Wisconsin. That's true. I'm not from Wisconsin. Um, but the main difference between you and me is that you're a man and I'm a woman. And we bring that to our marriage all the time in the way we view things, in the way we approach problems, in the way we approach anything in life. And so I think, frankly, that when he talked about the Harvard students, um, being, you know, uh, you know, trying to find happiness and, and, and they don't have love lives and all this, I think it's because so many of the women want their men to be like women. They want these beta men. Let men be men. Let women be women. And I bet that we would find more commonality and more um, attraction and more love in the world. Is, am I crazy? Uh, no, no, you're not. I think you're I, I, I wanted to finish with Arthur, but you guys went off on a different what subject. What I love is that Arthur is having these classes at Harvard. I like, do. I, I love think, that. Maybe Arthur might get mad at me for saying this, but maybe it's a little subversive, right? There's all this progressive liberal stuff. And you have this guy coming in who's a right of center guy who's like, listen, um, let the politics go. Talk about what makes you happy. And he starts to talk about happiness. And maybe there's a slight rewiring of brains at those kids in Harvard who have been indoctrinated for so long. They come to his course. Maybe they're like, huh, maybe this guy makes some sense. And maybe Arthur Brooks can save Harvard. One man by himself could save save America. You, save America. You know what the secret sauce to Arthur is? Is that Arthur was a liberal. Yeah. Arthur was a liberal. And so he knows how they think. It's a little bit like Donald Trump. If I told him that, he probably wouldn't like that. Yeah, like um, that. But, but, you know, liberals know liberals. He was a liberal and he did this study on charity. 
and on, um, how, you know, people's psychology and also the economy, the economics behind charity. And he found that liberals talk a big game about helping others. And yet it was conservatives um, that were the most yeah. generous with their money, which, by the way, on Fox and Friends, I see it all the time. We can put up a picture of somebody in need. And that day, I mean, I can't even tell you how many people. Do you know how much Websites money? We, do you know how much money Will Kane raised for Maui through our viewers? That's just through our viewers. Two point five million dollars. That's amazing. It's amazing. We have the most generous, amazing audience. And it is obviously a conservative audience. And um, even when you, when you took Valentina to the to the downs, to the Navarro farms, which, by the way, I'll say Chicago? it was in it's in Illinois, oh, yeah. like outside of Chicago. It's called Navarro Farms. It was a farm for um, Down, basically Down syndrome. They raised yeah, for Down syndrome. I did a story on I went to this farm and here's what they do with 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 Down syndrome teens because they they age out of so many of the programs after high school. And there's there's not a lot for them sometimes. And so it was like a social. Anyway, I went I took Valentina. I went to their Christmas party that they had. $100,000 or more later. Mm. Um, that is how generous conservatives are. And so anyway, Arthur Brooks wrote that first book and it, it was, you know, somebody, somebody finally, and he didn't expect that conclusion, I think, which is what's so interesting. And then he slowly had this transformation where he became uh, more of a conservative and he wrote about the conservative heart. Um, he had a famous book about the conservative heart. Um, and now he's teaming up with Oprah. I think it's wonderful. Um, they sell a lot of books. Oprah sells books. You know what's interesting too is, um, I, I do. We all have feelings on politics. We have feelings about happiness, what makes you happy. And he said this at the start of the interview. He said, you know, I'm a social scientist at heart and I wrap it on economics. It's economics and social science together. And he's actually looking at data. Yeah. He's trying to take data and the science to go. These are the things that you can do to make yourself. He says, is that a guru? that's got a pair of Birkenstocks on and writing a philosophy book? No, he's actually studying it. And by the way, the themes through the, through the years of studying that he's done are consistent with a lot of the themes he's brought up in the past. Yeah. Because th these are these are human traits of things that make you happy. Again, your family, your friends, your faith and purpose in your work. And you can find purpose in your work. Do those things. Um, can I read you what he says, Sean, about this is the way, because his book is like, here's what happiness is, here's what it's not. And then it's like, here's how you can build a life of that you want of purpose and happiness. Um, he has 11 principles. He says, happiness, as he mentioned before, is, is a direction, not a destination. Unhappiness is not your enemy. Choose your reactions, not your emotions. That's a really hard one for a Hispanic to do. Um, you can substitute the emotion you want for the one you feel. Uh, focus less on yourself. Talked about that. Your family problems can save your family. Oh, I wish we'd asked him about that. You know, what? I'm going to have him on Fox and Friends. I'm going to ask him about that. He'll start by. But you know what? That actually, oh my gosh, that's the story of your family. <laughs> when your brother Timmy was yeah. going through rehab and the whole family went to therapy and it ended up saving your family in many it was ways. Great. Yeah. It was really good for that family. And that incident, I always give Timmy credit for making our marriage better because you ended up the benefit of the all. benefit of all the things that your parents went through and it's helped our marriage. So, wow, I'm going to read that again. Your family problems can save your family. Mm. Mm, powerful. Look for real friends, not deal friends. Your work can be love made visible. 
That's we talked about that sanctifying your work. Um, find your spiritual path. Talked about that. Become a happiness teacher, which is that example he gave of the guy who goes to the break room. He doesn't find purpose in his work, but he just goes and gets a coffee and gives it to his friend mm. next door in the cubicle. And that 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 kind of bringing levity and light and love into all the work you do. I really truly believe in that. Um, and remember, happiness is love in action. Again, that's another. That's another Mother Teresa. I feel like I feel like Arthur Brooks was going into the Teresa vault, Mother Teresa vault, because it's full of stuff. You know, she says, you know, do small things with you know small things with great love. Charity begins in the home. Happiness is love in action. What book did you read? And I think you're maybe I'm getting this wrong. That you told me about the the guy that was in the concentration camp, or he was in. Oh, and he was laying bricks, being worked to death. Yeah, and he decided that you know what I'm going to. I'm working at how many hours a day? I'm going to be the best bricklayer that I can be. What, what, what's that? His name is Victor. I mean, I, I get the name. It's it's Man's Search for Meaning. It's a wonderful book. Um, our son was reading it. I decided to read it with him, and yeah, I mean, if you can find your dignity, love, and even happiness, even even moments of happiness that you could hold on to in a Concentration camp? What the and hell? Forced labor. And forced labor? What what the heck can we people who become bitter about what they have to do and, and are just focused on the injustice of what's happening to them? And we've all had injustice to them. Obviously that's about the apex of injustice that you could mm-hmm. face, right? Being put in a concentration camp because you're you're of your faith and your religion and who you are, an immutable you know, characteristics. Uh, that's the worst. But but that, but that is what Arthur's talking about. You're right. You're right. In, that's a in, great book. Life. Thanks for and bringing so, it up. Um, yeah, listen, I, I appreciate Arthur joining us um, and and unpacking the book. Again, a book with Oprah Winfrey. Uh, if you don't have it, get it. Yeah. Um, and if you want to give gifts for Christmas, I think it's a great gift because we all strive to be happy. Yeah. Uh, and some tools that Arthur lays out will help with that. Yeah. And again, he is a happy warrior himself. He is a happy warrior. He's, he's always been a happy warrior. Yes. So. so listen, thank you for joining us at the kitchen table. If you like our podcast, you can rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can get us at foxnewspodcasts.com. Please subscribe. You get a notice every time our podcast drops Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And in about a month's time, we're going five days a week. So we can't wait for that. And uh, until next time, we'll see you later. Bye, everybody. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.